Good evening. You're getting a double dose of Romans today, so if you would turn with me to Romans 1. Romans 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself, that you've revealed your son, that you've revealed our own need of your gospel. I pray that as I preach tonight that you'd uh, allow my words to be clear. I pray that I would be worshiping you as I preach, and I pray that everyone here would be worshiping as they listen. And I pray that you would be glorified in everything that's said and done here tonight. And I pray that your spirit would apply these truths of this passage tonight to our hearts so that we can better glorify and please you. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight, I'm just going to focus on verses 11 and 12, uh, starting with, for I long to see you. Uh, A lot of times, if you want to preach and emphasize the local church, you go to texts like 1 Corinthians 12 with a body analogy, or to Hebrews, which emphasizes the importance of gathering together. But I think verses 11 and 12 in Romans chapter 1 really help us understand what our expectations should be when we gather as a body. And to open up with a few questions for you to think on, what are some of your expectations when you come to Cornerstone? When you gather here on a Sunday, what are you coming for? What do you expect to get out of it? When you go to a midweek small group, what, what are you looking for? When you're going to a men or women's Bible study, uh, how do you think God will act I think these are important questions, especially as Pastor Bill preached this morning. We live in a culture growing darker, and even physically, Christians cannot meet in certain places in the world. 
a lot of people have expectations about the church that aren't biblical. They want to be entertained. They want to hear things they already agree with. They don't want to have their beliefs challenged by the word. And I think this, this passage where Paul shares his heart, his heart's desire to come and meet and be with this Roman church, it really helps us think through what our expectations are for the local church. I personally have found this passage very helpful, uh, and I've kept it in my mind as I've interacted with, with you all in small groups and uh, at service. It helps me get excited when I talk with fellow believers, and I hope that tonight, uh, when we understand these truths in connection with the rest of Scripture, you too will have a more excited uh, and fuller picture of us gathering together as a body. So I'm going to start out by uh, going through the, these couple of verses specifically and the words that are in there so that you can understand uh, the reality Paul is pointing to. Then I'm going to look more broadly at the New Testament, see what else it contains when it comes to the encouragement of the body. And finally, I'm going to go through some implications of the truths in the text before us tonight. So first, let me read through our, our verses one more time, just so you get them in your head. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So first you have this this phrase, I long to see you. What this word means in the Greek is to earnestly desire, to passionately long for. Paul uses this word when he writes to the Corinthians to describe his desire to be with the Lord. He writes in the letters to Philippians and 1 Thessalonians, and use this word to describe his longing to be with the churches there. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, I earnestly desire to, to see you, Timothy. And I think most interestingly, in 1 Peter 2, 2, Peter says, believers should earnestly desire, should long after the pure milk of the word. And I think that's a helpful analogy when you think of this word. Uh, I have a few more months before my son is born, uh, but I think the metaphor is pretty clear baby's longing for milk isn't a, I kind of want some milk, please. It's a strong desire. It's a need. And that's the same idea Paul's saying here. It's not a passing desire, like, wouldn't it be nice if I could go to Rome? It's a heart desire. He really wants to go to Rome, and he really wants to be with these believers. Why does he want to go to Rome? It says, that I may impart to you. And that's easily understood. It means to share something with someone. Paul has something that he wants to share with the church. Uh, he longs to go to the church in Rome to share something. And the thing he wants to share is a spiritual gift, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. This word is charisma. It's a divine grace, a divine gift. And I think MacArthur, in his uh, Bible doctrine, does a really good job of defining this. It's, it's not talking about necessarily the gifts of the Spirit, although this word is used in connection with the gifts of the Spirit. What this word is emphasizing is it's something that comes from God. The origin of the gift is God, and it has come to you. In Romans 5, it talks about the divine gift, the charisma, is justification in Christ. In Romans 12, it talks about spiritual gifts are a divine gift from God. In First and Second Timothy, this word is used to talk about the gift of elders and deacons to the church. So when Paul is using this word charisma, he's not talking about, I want to impart to you the gift of tongues or something like that. He's saying, he's highlighting where he got the gift from. The gift is from God. God is the one giving these gifts. And Paul has it, and he wants to share it with the church. So what is the gift that Paul wants to share? 
that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. So first, before we get to the, the gift itself, faith, he says he wants to give this gift to strengthen the church. The purpose of this gift, the reason he wants to share it, is that the Roman church would be strengthened. And what this word means is to set fast, to confirm, to fix. Uh, in the epistles, it's used figuratively to mean, you know, establish and exhort you in the faith, uh, establish your hearts in holiness. And I think a helpful metaphor to think of when you read this word is think of an anchor, right? Uh, when Paul says, don't be tossed to and fro, you know, anchor yourself in holiness, anchor yourself in the truth. This word, to strengthen you, is used in the Septuagint in that passage where Moses has to hold up his hands uh, so that Israel can keep winning the battle. Uh, it says Aaron fixed Moses' hands, established his hands. So Paul is anchoring. Paul wants to come and impart a gift that will strengthen and anchor the church. So the question is, what is Paul strengthening or establishing? And I think the reason I read the whole passage is I think it's the gospel. He talks about reaping some harvest among the Roman church. He talks about he's eager to preach the gospel to them in Rome. And if you go to the end of Romans, in Romans 16, Paul says, I myself am fully satisfied about you, the church, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of a reminder. Paul wants to remind the Roman church of the truth of the gospel. Why? So that they can be established, so they can be more firmly convinced of the truth of the gospel. And that goes along with what follows. Uh, he says he wants to impart a spiritual gift to strengthen them. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Uh, what is the faith that Paul wants to share? It's faith in the gospel. It's faith in Christ. Paul can't wait to go to this church to share his faith with the church, to remind them of the truth. Why? So that the believers can be more certain of the truths that they both believe. The last word I want to draw your attention to is this word mutually encouraged by each other's faith. This word is only used once in scripture, and it's a compound word. Paul combines a word that means uh, comfort or encourage. If you were here at Sunday school this morning, Nathan brought up uh, the word encourage because it occurred at the end of 1 Corinthians. So Paul uses that word comfort or encourage and combines it uh, with this word meaning with. And that's where we get this translation, mutual encouragement, with encouragement. Both Paul and the church are being encouraged. It's a joint comfort. It's a joint encouragement. What I find interesting is Paul repeats three times to emphasize this mutualness of this encouragement. That we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. That's one. Both yours and mine. That's two. And uh, impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. I guess there's only two. Go figure. But he emphasizes that Paul doesn't want to just come to the church to give. He also expects a, a mutual encouragement from interacting with this church. Uh, and you wouldn't necessarily think this when you think of Paul. You know, he's a great apostle, and he's saying he, he's going to come to this church and be encouraged by this normal body of believers in Rome. If you read Paul's letters, Paul is often actually comforted and encouraged by the believers. Uh, when Paul is visited by Tychicus and Timothy, uh, he says, I was encouraged by that. 
when he writes to Philemon, he says that Philemon's love is an encouragement and a comfort to Paul. And so Paul also expects when he goes to Rome, he's going to be encouraged. He's going to encourage the church, and he's going to be encouraged. So that's what the verses say. And if we, we step back and sort of summarize so far what we see, Paul is intensely longing to visit the church in Rome so that both he and the church can be encouraged by each other's faith. And Paul calls out that this faith is a gift from the Lord and that the encouragement they receive will help anchor their faith in Christ. So Christians need other Christians so that their faith can be encouraged and can endure. So that, that's the, the main point in this, these two verses of Scripture. And I think there's, there's a couple questions that we can answer and ask of the text that help expound on this truth, this desire Paul has for mutual encouragement. So the first is, why is encouragement and comfort, why, why is that an important thing for believers? Uh, Paul's letters are full of this language of encouragement, of comfort. It's easy to sometimes to think of Paul's letters as corrective or instructive, and they are. But Paul's letters are also incredibly encouraging. He doesn't just want to correct the church's behavior or uh, exhort them in the truth. He also wants to comfort the churches as they live out their faith in Christ. And if you look at the New Testament, Paul and other New Testament authors really do emphasize this idea of encouraging the local bodies they write to. I find it interesting, in Paul's time, in the, in the context of, of, Paul, of where and when Paul was living, it was considered a duty of a relative or a neighbor to comfort a grieving person. If you were, if you were near, you would either visit that person, uh, but if you were far away, you would write a letter. And there's actually a lot of these letters of comfort that have survived from Paul's time. Uh, what's interesting is if, if you look at them, the things that people say to encourage their friends or relatives. Uh, they say things like, don't lament too long. Uh, they suggest drinking wine or seeking out diversions like song or riddles. And depending on the background of the person who wrote the letter, they might even suggest reading philosophy or poetry. What's interesting is these letters in Paul's time hardly ever referenced God or the gods, if you were a pagan. In pagan religions at the time, comfort and encouragement could only be found in earthly or human things. The idea that a pagan deity would care about your and my individual suffering was crazy. Why would a lowly human expect God to care or about his or her suffering and comfort them? So the biblical concept of a God who comforts his people was not common in the ancient world. And honestly, if we, if we think about the, <laughs> the different things they tried to encourage other people with, they're very similar to what we hear today, right? When someone goes through suffering, you're told, you know, don't, don't worry about it too long, go get drunk, go do X, Y, Z. Again, nothing to talk about God. We really do, in Scripture, have a unique picture of a God of all comfort. So I, I just want to go through a few texts that the Bible says about comfort. So the first thing we have to understand when we read the New Testament, the truth comforts the church. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage, comfort, same word, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you're doing. So in this letter to the Thessalonians, Paul is talking about the hope of Christ returning and being with him forever, and he says, in light of this, encourage one another. In light of what Christ is going to do in the future, comfort one another. 
In other words, the, the practical response to the truth of Christ's return is it should encourage the church. Paul's not just communicating spiritual truth so that you can have a head knowledge. He wants the Thessalonian church, when he says that, to actually be comforted by what the truth says. The truths of Scripture should comfort and encourage the church. That's the first thing when the New Testament talks about encouragement. Second thing, Christ comforts the church. Philippians 2.1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You see that word in the first clause, if there is any encouragement or comfort in Christ. And Paul's not saying maybe there is, maybe there isn't encouragement in Christ. He's more saying, since we have encouragement in Christ, do these things, have unity. Paul sees Christ as a source of the Christian's encouragement. And this encouragement provides the basis for the Philippian church to have unity. Thinking the same way, having the same goal. So, first, the truth comforts the church. Second, Christ comforts the church. Third, and we've seen this in 2 Corinthians if you've been here in Sunday school, God comforts the church. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all affliction, so that we might comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we ourselves have been comforted by God. Again, this is revolutionary at the time. No one who believes in a false God would think their God would comfort them in their suffering. But the Bible says the source of comfort and encouragement is God. God is the one who comforts, and part of the reason he comforts is so that we, believers, can comfort others. So God, the truth comforts the believers, Jesus comforts the believers, God comforts believers, so they can comfort others. That's the last point. Christians comfort other Christians. And this brings us full circle back to Romans 1. Other believers offer encouragement and comfort to other believers. That is one of the main reasons the Bible gives for us gathering together. Hebrews 10, you know the verse, let us encourage how to stir up one another, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One of the reasons we're called to gather together as a body is so that we can mutually encourage and comfort each other. Encouraging the Roman church was important to Paul because Christian, the source of Christian comfort matters. Paul wanted to encourage these believers in Rome who were a minority in the culture, who were going to face persecution. Being a Christian in this time meant sacrifice, suffering, loss. And as we, we learned from this morning from Pastor Bill, it, it, it meant not fitting into the mold of the culture. That was going to cost them. So the New Testament is full of drawing believers' attention who are suffering, who are being persecuted back to the source of comfort, back to truth, back to Christ, back to God, back to fellow believers. God comforts his people through means. God does not give us superficial comforts like the world gives. And one of the main sources of comfort God provides is other Christians. Paul knew this. Paul didn't want to come to Rome to correct everyone or confront everyone there. He also wanted to encourage them to establish their faith. And as I said before, Paul expected this to be mutual. He expected to get comfort and encouragement from seeing this church's faith. 
other Christians are a God-ordained source of consolation in times of suffering. As, as a side note, by way of application, never let your suffering pull you away from other believers. If you do, you are cutting yourself off from one of the God-ordained means that he's going to try to comfort you with. What, what is interesting in this text, however, is Paul says the source of the encouragement is faith. His faith is going to encourage the church, and the church's faith is going to encourage him. And that leads us to our, our next question. How can faith and encouragement be related? How, in other words, how can me seeing your faith encourage me, comfort me, and establish me in my faith? In Romans 1, Paul's connect, Paul connects these two. And I think there's, there's two ways that faith can be an encouragement, at least two ways. I'm just going to go to two tonight. There might be more. First, strong faith sets an example. Throughout the Bible, God gives us examples of strong faith. He doesn't just say, have faith. He also gives us practical pictures of what faith looks like. Here's an example. Luke 7, Jesus and the Roman centurion. You remember the story. A centurion slave was sick. The centurion requested that Jesus heal him. In humility and faith, the centurion says, Jesus, you don't even need to go to my house. Just say the word, and you have the authority to heal my slave. And Jesus' response was, I have not found faith like this even in Israel. He was amazed. What Luke is doing is he's holding up the centurion as an example of strong faith. He was humble. He came to Jesus in humility. He had confidence in Jesus' power and authority to heal. And Jesus actually turns to the crowd and says, this is the type of faith I want to see. That's one way faith is an encouragement. When you see someone have strong faith in Jesus, you are encouraged to imitate that faith. To put it another way, your faith can comfort other believers by setting an example of humble trust in Jesus and God's word. Faith in God can easily become an abstract thing in our minds. What, what is faith? What does it mean to have faith in God? The good news is you're in a body where you can see God-given examples, living and breathing and living their life by faith. Uh, Timothy in Sunday school today had a really good point that sometimes when you read scripture, you, you don't understand how it applies until you see another brother or sister living it out. That's the type of thing I'm talking about. When you see examples of obedient, faith-driven worship of God, you start understanding what that means for your life. So that's one reason that Paul's faith could encourage the Roman church, is his faith is an example. His faith displays something of living the life of obedient faith. Second way that faith can be a comfort and encouragement. Faith in action encourages us to stay the course, be steadfast, and to act. Faith doesn't just set an example of what type of faith you should have. When you see someone's faith in action, your faith becomes more steadfast. This happens in Hebrews. In Hebrews 10, the author says, Church, your faith needs endurance. That's the problem. Your faith needs endurance. You don't have it. You need to have enduring faith. What does he do next? Whole chapter in Hebrews 11, going through person after person as an example of what enduring faith looks like. The author of Hebrews wants the Christians to continue in the faith and to not draw back. And how he does it is he goes through the Old Testament and says, look, these people live the life of faith in the midst of trials. And how does he end it? He says, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, therefore you too can run the race with endurance. The point is, examples of enduring faith, especially faith that endures in suffering, can encourage you to stay the course 
and to act in accordance with your faith in less than ideal circumstances. When you see someone who is having an enduring faith, it encourages you that you're not alone. The God who is faithful to believers in the past is the same God who will hold you fast in the present. The author of Hebrews did that. The only way this strategy would work, showing other believers, is that if you saw someone's faith in action, it would actually encourage your faith. How many times have you read a a missionary biography or uh, the life of a pastor, fellow believer, and felt your own heart excited and hungry and wanting to be like that? That's what I'm talking about here. When you see examples of enduring faith, faith that acts, faith that endures, you start seeing, I want that. I want to have that same thing. So that's another way that Paul's faith and the Roman Christian's faith could encourage each other mutually is because when you see faith in action, it strengthens your resolve. But there's a final question to ask. The foundation of mutual encouragement. What do Paul and the Roman Christians have in common? And I think this is probably the most important question you could ask of the passage. The Apostle Paul is going to Rome, is going to be encouraged, but how could these two groups be encouraging to each other? What do they have in common? Because if you don't stop and think, on the superficial level, there seems to be a lot of differences. They don't seem to have a lot in common. If you just focus on externals, Paul and the Roman church are pretty different. They come from different geographies, they have different backgrounds. Paul's from a completely different part of the world. He lived and grew up in a completely different context than these Roman believers. He also had a completely different background, right? He was an apostle specifically called by God. This Roman church was a bunch of recent converts. Paul had studied the Old Testament with Gamaliel, one of the preeminent scholars of his day. The Roman Christians probably weren't near at his level of understanding the Old Testament, of knowing Scripture. Paul was traveling around planting churches. These Roman Christians were more in an ordinary local ministry. What do these two have in common? And you could go on. These aren't in the text, but just my own mind thinking through them. Paul was probably just smarter than most of the believers here. You know, you read his letters, and the guy's mind is brilliant. He thought and argued really well, and I doubt that any of us here or any of the Christians in Rome who were likely a lot of slaves who were converted— I don't think any of them had near the intelligence that Paul has. And Paul, like I said before, likely knew more scripture. He was trained as a Pharisee, and for that you had to memorize large chunks of scripture. Probably the Roman Christians did not have that background. So if you step back and look at those superficial differences, you should think, how could Paul and the Roman church have anything in common? How could they be both encouraged when they had completely different backgrounds, lived in different parts of the world, and had different levels of intelligence and Bible knowledge. That's if you only look at the superficial level, if you only want to look at the externals. But if you actually look at the spiritual level, they had so much in common that they could encourage each other with. The whole letter of Romans, in fact, uh, demonstrates the rich spiritual commonalities that Paul and the church in Rome had. First, they had the same ultimate background. Both groups were sinners before Christ. Paul and the Roman Christians had the same fundamental problem, the wrath of God on their sin. Paul persecuted the church. We might know the specifics of what sins the Roman church members were guilty of before believing in Christ, but we do know that all fall short of the glory of God. Paul and the Roman Christians, before they were saved, were sinners under the wrath of God. 
They have the same problem. Every human has not given God the glory due him. Rather than glorifying God, acknowledging him, worshiping him, thanking him, every human being has exchanged God's glory, given it up for lesser things. It looked different in Paul's life versus the Roman Christian's life, but the root issue was the same. Neither Paul or the Romans, before they were saved, looked for God. No one seeks after God. No one does good, not even one. Paul, Roman Christians, Christians anytime, anywhere, same problem. And the law could not help either of them, for by the law no human being is justified in God's sight, because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul and the Roman Christians had the same problem, their sin, their rebellion against God. So that's their first commonality. Their second commonality, they had the same need. They had the same need of Christ's righteousness. In Romans 3, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness of it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That is what Paul and the Romans both needed. The law was a dead end. Their works were a dead end. They could never keep God's law, but God's made another way. Apart from the law, God's righteousness was manifested. Jesus, it says in Romans 8, for what the law could not do because it was weak through the flesh, Christ did. Jesus is the end of the law for all who believe. Paul and the church had only one question they needed to answer, regardless of their background, regardless of their sins before Christ. The only question that matters is, how can God be perfectly righteous and yet still forgive? How can God forgive humans who rebel against him? Humans who despise him, who build idols in their hearts. Is there any hope for lawbreakers? Uh, uh, Paul says in in Titus, uh, before you were saved, you were disobedient, deceived. Before the kindness of Christ appeared, there is hope because God's righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. That's where Paul goes in the book of Romans. That is the foundation of their unity, the foundation that they can encourage each other on. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. That means Jesus paid their punishment. When Christ was on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't for his own sins that Christ cried this out. It was because God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It pleased the Lord to crush him, so that by his wounds we might be healed. Sinners like Paul, sinners like the Romans before they believed, and sinners like us before we believed. The only righteousness that can save us is Christ's, and that's the same need that Paul had and the Roman church had. They were united in that they had received mercy, magnificent mercy, costly mercy. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul and the church had the same background, the same need, and as I said, everyone here has the same need as well. The world tells you you have a lot of problems and gives you a lot of solutions, but the Bible is the only place we can find the truth about yourself, the truth about what your real problem is. Paul's fundamental problem wasn't that he was persecuting the church. His problem was he was a hater of God. He was pursuing a righteousness apart from Christ. And the reality is, if you are listening to me tonight and have not repented and turned from your rebellion against God and turned to Jesus by believing in his death on the cross, the only implication that matters is believe. Don't delay. There can be no mutual encouragement. There cannot be any true unity unless we start here. The same need and the same solution, Christ. 
Since Paul and the Roman Christians had both tasted that goodness in Christ, now they have more in common than they ever had on a superficial level. And we could go on. Paul talks about they, have, they would have the same struggle with indwelling sin that we see in Romans 7. They have the same spirit of adoption in Romans 8. They have the same ethical implications now that they're believers, as you see in Romans 12 and following. Paul and the Roman Christians were united in all the important ways. They had the same needs, the same present reality, the same future hope. Therefore, because they had those similarities, fundamental similarities, they could encourage each other, and that encouragement could really be mutual. Even though they had different backgrounds, they could speak into each other's lives because their lives were the same in all the important ways, in all the essential ways. So, stepping back, we've seen what the, what the text says uh, that Christians need other Christians to be encouraged, that Paul wanted to go to the church in Rome to encourage them by his faith and receive encouragement. We've seen that fellow believers are one of the main sources of comfort that God gives us, that our faith can set an example for other believers and also encourage other believers to endure. And very importantly, the only reason any believer can encourage any other believer is that you're united to the same person. You have the same faith in Jesus. Now, I want to end this with five implications of the truth that we've seen. Okay? Five. And there's, there's more, but I'm just going to stick to five. Implication one, your faith is not a static thing. It needs to grow. It needs to be encouraged. Think about Abraham. He is the prototypical example of faith in the Bible. Everyone looks back to Abraham. But if you read the story of Abraham in Genesis, he didn't just start out with perfect faith. He believed God and it was accounted for righteousness, and then he lied about his wife being his sister. Uh, twice. Back, like, one and then the other. But his faith eventually grew to the point that he was even willing to offer his son up in obedience to God. Your trust in the Lord can develop and grow and find new expressions in obedience. And here's a key. Other Christians might have what you need to grow in your faith. A, uh, a month or so ago, Abby and I visited the Rosses down in uh, North Carolina at seminary. And this verse was alive there. We were mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And again, you think superficially, you know, we're living different places. We're learning different things. We're different stages of life. And yet, because we had the same spirit, his faith encouraged me, my faith encouraged him, and we both left that weekend more passionate about Christ. Your individual experience is not the whole of the Christian life. It isn't even normative. You need the perspective of other believers. You need to see where your faith is lacking. And a lot of times, the only time you see that is when you see other believers and interact with them. I, I think it's so easy, it can be so easy to write people off at church you, you can look at a fellow believer and say, well, they don't know as much as I know, or I, I, don't, I just don't think they're obeying the Lord in this way or that way, or I don't connect with them. I don't really care to get to know them. Remember, Paul undoubtedly knew more scripture than the church in Rome, yet Paul was still aching to be with them because he was not above encouragement by those believers. Anyone who loves the Lord has the potential to encourage your faith. Anyone. Anytime you are with another believer, your soul should brim with excitement. Why? You are about to interact with someone who, according to Scripture, has the Holy Spirit dwelling in their heart, 
who has their eyes open to the truth about the gospel, and who knows God, the living God, the creator of the universe. God could use any interaction with a fellow believer to grow your faith, to encourage your faith, to comfort you in a tough time. You never know what is going to happen when you talk with or meet with a brother and sister in Christ. We should all brim with excitement when we interact with fellow believers. You could be having a mundane conversation with a fellow believer, and then all of a sudden you're talking about truth, you're sharing what you're learning about the Lord, and then you leave mutually encouraged. That's only possible because of Christ, because we have the same Spirit. If you need another reason to love the church, to gather with believers, here it is. You have no idea what encouragement might be in store with you. Small group, you might feel like it could be an inconvenience. It's in the middle of the week. You have no idea how God might encourage your faith with it, though. Men's ministry might be a sacrifice on your family. You have no idea, though, what God could use to encourage and strengthen your faith with fellow believers there. And the, the person encouraging you might not even know. I remember when Abby and I were, were trying to seek God's will for when we should have a kid. We were sitting in a Sunday school discussion, and Stephanie Kelly uh, was sharing an unrelated story. From her perspective, had no idea what we were going through, had no idea what we were thinking about, but her story about God's faithfulness helped us in a way she didn't even know about until later. I could give more examples, but the point here is your faith needs encouragement. It needs it. And so implication two, this one's obvious, you need the local church. If your faith needs encouragement, you need the local church. Certainly you can get encouragement from any believer, and you should. Believers from different parts of the country, different parts of your family. Uh, Going over to Russia and being encouraged by believers there was a great part of my college years. But primarily, where are you going to interact with fellow believers? Where? It's here, in the local church. The group of families who are not related by blood, but who have covenanted together to worship together, serve together, and live their lives together. Uh, And for a lot of us, it's been a while since we've said the the cornerstone membership covenant, but there's a line in here that I think is helpful. Uh, I purpose by the aid of my heavenly Father to do his will, to take his church and its members as my fellow members in the family of faith, to submit to the loving oversight and discipline of the officers of this church, to bring to it such faith and comfort as I have means to render. I love that line. Bring to it such faith and comfort as I have means to render. Your membership and my membership in this local body, in this local manifestation of God's universal church, you have to bring, it's, it's about glorifying God and blessing others. If you're a member here, that's what you've agreed to before God and before fellow believers. You've agreed to bring your faith, to bring your comfort. And guess what? According to this text in Romans, your faith, as just faith, can be a comfort, can be an encouragement. And so when we gather as a body, what are you aiming at? Are you coming with a self-focused perspective, thinking, what can I get out of service? How can Pastor Bill bless me from the pulpit? Or are you thinking, how can I encourage these believers as I've agreed to? Do you have an intense desire to do this as well? We we saw at the beginning of this verse, for I long to see you. Paul wasn't saying it would be nice to encourage you, Christians. He says, I have an intense longing to do this. And this is a church he'd never met. Do we have that same longing when we gather together with believers we meet week after week after week? Do we have that same desire and longing to be together with the body, to share our faith with each other? So those are the first two implications. Your faith needs encouragement, and you need the local church. Implication three, 
Talk about your faith to other believers. One of my favorite passages is Deuteronomy 6. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. I I, I trust that hopefully after hearing this text, you're going to be excited to encourage and build up fellow believers, and that's great. Step one is talk about your faith. If you never share what's going on spiritually in your life, or if you never ask another believer what God is doing spiritually in your lives, how are you going to mutually encourage them? Certainly seeing other people's faith in action is an encouragement, but I would argue most of the time what's encouraging is hearing about what God's doing in their life, what they're learning about the Lord in their study of the Word. To get really practical, I was at a conference and two questions uh, that the, the person gave for discipleship that we should ask fellow believers. Here's the question one. How has God been growing you in your knowledge of him lately? That's a good question. How has God been growing you in the knowledge of him lately? And then second question, how has the Lord been growing you in living out your faith lately? How has God been growing you in living out your faith lately? Those are good questions. Good conversation starters to get beyond just superficial discussions among believers, but actually, uh, what is your stat- status with the Lord? How are you learning about him? How are you living out the truths of Scripture in your life? Ask these questions or questions like them to fellow believers and then answer them honestly with other believers. Um, I'm very blessed to be uh, working at the same place uh, Tom Hopkins is, and one of the best parts of my week is when we're able to go on walks together. The reality is I go on walks with a lot of coworkers that aren't believers. Conversation, not edifying, not helpful. At the best, it's meaningless. But when I'm walking with another believer and the conversation takes a turn to, so what are you reading in Scripture? What what am I reading in Scripture? All of a sudden, in the middle of my work week, God is mutually encouraging me in my faith. What a blessing. Look for those opportunities and conversations. Don't let them pass you by. Ask the question directly. If The reality is, if you are individually pursuing the Lord and developing a relationship with Christ, it should not take much effort at all to get you talking about him with other believers. If you're growing in your faith and God's showing you truth, you should be super excited to share that, to encourage a brother or sister. Because, again, you don't know how what you're going to say is going to be a blessing to them. That's implication three. Talk about your faith with others. Implication four, and this is a warning, do not think that your faith is above encouragement from other believers. We know the passage in Revelation, the church in Laodicea. It's one of the most sobering uh, sections of Scripture. Uh, And you have this very scary line, Jesus talking to the church. Because you say I am rich, I have become wealthy and need nothing, and you don't know that you are actually wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. It can be very easy as a Christian at a spiritual level to think this about your faith. Self-satisfaction. It's a constant danger for the believer. If your life's going fine, if you're in the groove spiritually, so to speak, it's easy to slip into the kind of thinking, I don't need to grow in my faith. I don't need to be encouraged by other believers. It would be nice, but I'm pretty much set right now. And as soon as you slip into that mindset that you have all that you need spiritually, you stop looking for those opportunities to give and receive encouragement from other believers. You stop asking believers questions. You stop noticing the way their faith is being lived out. Why? Because your pride is making you think you don't need anything. It's spiritual pride. 
As soon as you follow the mindset of, I don't need other believers, you're thinking that you are stronger than Scripture says you are. Scripture says, you who stand, take heed lest you fall. Spiritual pride says, I got this. My faith doesn't need encouragement from others. In fact, other believers should be coming to me for my encouragement. And this text is a warning tonight because Paul undoubtedly had strong faith, but he was undoubtedly not above encouragement from other believers. And he could say this in our text because Paul was humble. Paul knew that he was not above encouragement from fellow believers. Paul said to the Corinthians, What do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The Christian is humble because there's no room for spiritual pride in the gospel. It's an evidence of our, of our flesh warring with the Spirit when you feel like you have no need of other believers, when you feel like you don't need to be encouraged by other believers. First uh, Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Don't be deceived. You need the body of Christ more than you think. Even if it is true that you're in a good place spiritually, there's still more to know and still more to grow in. We serve an infinitely glorious God. There is never a time when you should think that you've had enough of him or enough of Christ, or that you know enough of him or know enough of Christ. Humble yourself and admit that you do need other believers. Other believers might have exactly the encouragement that you're lacking. That's point four. Don't think your faith is above encouragement from other believers. And finally, as an encouragement, even small things build up the church. Uh, a couple of summers back, uh, Dr. Curlette was teaching through either Ezra or Nehemiah, and he kept repeating this verse, do not despise the day of small things. It is so easy as a Christian in America to only focus on big things, numbers, success, or the big word, impact, right? You and I live in a culture where bigger is better, and if you aren't noticed, you're told that you're not important. I, I read this quote. This is an actual quote from a book I read a few months ago. You are either great or you don't exist. You are either great or you don't exist. That is the wisdom of the world system that Pastor Bill talked about this morning. You are either great or you don't exist. That's a lie. A sad, misinformed perspective. God is great. You exist because God is great, to show God is great, to enjoy his greatness. But this idea that you are only great if you do big things, it's everywhere. And how it manifests itself in the church, personally, is I, I find I always want to be doing something, right? Uh, maybe you feel like you need to serve in such and such a ministry. Uh, maybe you want to teach or be seen as the, the wise Christian, the wise one people come to. And a lot of times, it's easy to shift our focus from, from people, from eternal souls that we're supposed to be serving, to the acts of service themselves. And what, what I, I find encouragement for in, in this passage in Romans is that even little conversations about our faith can be mutually encouraging, that can have a bigger impact than you might think. Such a good verse. Don't despise the day of small things. You might not have a massive ministry, but you can encourage someone else in the faith. You have the same gospel message. You have the same Lord. You have the same text of Scripture that you study. And by encouraging a fellow believer, you can bless them and the church. 
Other believers need to hear what the Lord is teaching you. Some of you, you, you might sit here tonight thinking, I'm not the smartest in the room. I don't have the strongest faith. I don't know the most scripture. Let this text encourage you tonight. You do have something to bring to the table. You do have a role to play in the life of the church. Speak, share. It doesn't have to be eloquent, but your faith, your walk with the Lord can be a blessing to others. You might not be called to teach a Sunday school, but you can share something God has been teaching you. You're not, you might not be called to, to head up a ministry, but you can always tell someone about an area God has allowed you to be obedient in. You might not be the one everyone goes to for life advice and wisdom, but you can share lessons God has taught you from your war against your own sin. If you've ever asked yourself, how can I serve? Or said to yourself, I can't serve. I don't know what I have to offer. Be encouraged from this text. God has given you everything you need to bless the church, to help other believers. Your faith. Paul calls it a divine gift, a spiritual gift that can strengthen others. Your love for Christ, your personal commitment to follow him, your voice as you sing praises him on Sunday morning, all these things you can encourage and bless other believers in ways you might not even know or see. You are well equipped to bless Cornerstone and any other believer you have in contact with. Why? Because Christ He's given you the gift of faith, of faith in him. And you can share that faith and encourage other people's faith by just talking about what the Lord's done for you. So those are the five implications from this text. Your faith needs encouragement. You need the local church. You need to talk to other believers about your faith. You shouldn't think your faith is above encouragement from others. And finally, you are equipped to serve the church because even small conversations about the Lord, about what he's teaching you, have the potential to impact other people. I, I honestly, one of the toughest things with this sermon is I just wanted to add example after example of conversations I've had with some of you here, with believers I've interacted with outside the church. There's so many good conversations uh, almost weekly where I can look at this verse and say, yes, I was mutually encouraged. I was strengthened. My resolve to follow Christ and be obedient to him and to live for his glory increased just by that simple conversation. I've listened to a lot of sermons. I've read a lot of great books. But the most impactful thing in my life has always been consistent spiritual conversation. Consistent spiritual conversation with other people who love the Lord, who know the Lord. Paul couldn't wait to get to Rome so that his faith could be encouraged and so that he could encourage the Roman church with his faith. Next time you're talking with a brother or sister, ask yourself and ask the Lord, how is this interaction mutually encouraging our faith? If it's not, how can I, how can I be an encouragement to them? How can, how can I turn the conversation spiritually? May we as a body desire to fellowship together, not just for, for fun, not just because we're commanded to, but because we cannot wait to see how God uses ordinary conversations and interactions to produce fruit and Christ-likeness in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your body. Sometimes it's easy to think that we could have done it on our own. If you had just saved us as individuals, we could have done it on our own, followed you on our own, but we know, Lord, that we need each other. Thank you for the diversity of the body, for different gifts, for different life situations. And thank you for the unity we have in Christ that the most important things 
we actually all have in common. Thank you for the gospel and the foundation that we can build on, that we can encourage each other on. I pray that we as a body would be faithful to live out what we covenanted together to do, and that is to bring our faith, to bring our comfort, and to give it to each other in our conversations and in our actions. We love you. Thank you, Christ, for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.